This past Memorial Day, Jim Carlson, who'd been the associate pastor here at Calvary Church for many years, was going in to have a somewhat uh, unexpected emergency quadruple bypass surgery on his heart. And so we found out a couple of days um, before that Memorial Day weekend that he had been admitted to the hospital and uh, they were making sort of the preparations. They didn't let him go home. They're like, we're not gonna let you leave until we do this surgery. And so Lisa and I found out surgery is going to be Saturday morning. And so we were praying uh, for Jim and for his wife, Denise. And uh, that morning, uh, Lisa and I got up and we went to an open house for one of the families uh, here at Calvary who had a a daughter graduating from high school. And we went and got to celebrate uh, her graduation. We were leaving the open house and we were driving uh, back towards, we're going to drive towards the hospital and we received a text Uh, It was about noon, and uh, Jim had gone in for surgery, I think about 6 or 6.30 that morning. We received a text that he was out of surgery and that he was in the recovery room. And so we're like, well, that's great. What perfect timing. We've just finished the open house. It'd be a great time to go uh, and see him. So we drove down to the Meyer Heart Center, parked the car, went in, went to the information desk and said, we're here to see uh, Jim Carlson. And the person working at the information desk looked up his information. Let's go, yeah. He's in the recovery room. Uh, he's just, uh, just finished with heart surgeries in the recovery room. But he says to us, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend and we're pretty short-staffed. It's really, really difficult to find the recovery room in the Meyer Heart Center. It's on the second floor, but there's lots of twists and turns. He said, why don't I take you up there? We're like, well, great, how kind is that? So he puts his little note on his desk that says he'll be back in a few minutes. And he begins to escort us to the Meyer Heart Center and we kind of wander around all these back paths and it becomes clear pretty quickly there's no way we would have found this on our own. We pass by one nurse's station and there's no one at the nurse's station. And uh, we pass by another nurse's station, also no one at the nurse's station. And that one's got sort of the closed doors that say, you know, you're not sort of allowed in without the nurse's approval. And so... He's like, well, no one's here. He's like, it's fine. So he presses the button, the doors open up, and he leads us through. And finally, we get to the recovery room. And I don't know if you've been in a recovery room in the Meyer Heart Center. It's pretty typical. It's, uh, they're all just kind of curtained areas. It's kind of like you're in a big circle, and the nurse's station is sort of in the center, and it's like the recovery rooms are like slices of pie all around the center. And so the only thing that divides them are these curtains. And so we look, he lets us into the recovery room and uh, he says, you know, there's no nurse on call here at the nurse's station yet. He's like, just wait here and uh, I'm sure someone will be here. So we say to him, I look across the room and there I see Jim in one of the sections and he's got his nice white coiffed hair and he's kind of laying there in his bed. And so I say to the guy, you know, we see our friend, that's fine. So he leaves and so I call out across, because not maybe 20 feet or so, and I'm like, so, heart surgery, because the last time I saw him, no idea that heart surgery was coming. So he smiles and we smile at him as we walk across the room and so the guy who led us into the room left. And uh, Lisa goes in first And uh, she takes hold of Jim's hand and she's kind of caressing his hand and she's kind of standing up a little bit more kind of nearer to his head. And I'm kind of standing about where his hips are and he's got, you know, one of these, 
don't know if you've seen them, these kind of hearts, they did like heart pillow after you have heart surgery and he's got that on his chest and uh, it's got sort of instructions on it or whatever. And uh, I'm like, hey, how you doing? You know, this was unexpected. How are you? Now, meanwhile, I'm thinking, boy, this, he doesn't look very good. Uh, and I'm thinking, especially in his face, like it just, like surgery was really hard. And I'm trying to figure out, why does his face look strange? Like why is, why did the surgery affect him so much in the face? Well, I'm, I'm there holding his hand and, and I look over and there is a woman whose eyes are as wide as saucers staring at me. I've never seen this woman before in my life and it's most certainly not Denise who's Jim's wife. It's clear from the look on her face that she's never seen me before in her life either. Lisa, meanwhile, is having her own experience. She says she's kind of stroking his hand and she looks down and wonders, why does Jim Carlson have an ID bracelet that says William on it? So at this point, I've figured out this is not Jim Carlson. <laughs> but I'm commit we're committed. We're in the room. We're holding the guy's hand. And so best I can do, I just blurt out, um, we're actually here to see someone else. <laughs> but I felt compelled to come and pray for you. <laughs> so I say, would that be okay? So the lady never says anything. She just continues to stare at us. And the guy says, William, uh, says, hi. Now, I don't know his name is William because, Lisa, we haven't been able to talk yet. Um, so I just, I launch into a prayer. Well, of course, three or four sentences into the prayer, I don't know who I'm praying for at this point because I don't know what his name is. So I'm praying for this dear man, and then I start praying for his wife. Of course, it dawns on me. This may not be his wife. <laughs> I don't have any. This could be a sister. could be a girlfriend. I don't know anything about this situation. So I don't even know what I pray. We sort of end the prayer. And then, well, of course, time to leave. So again, the woman says nothing this entire time. William doesn't say anything either. So the nurse's station is only about seven feet away, and so we walk back to the nurse's station, and they're still right there, and we're still uh, right here. Still no nurse. So we look on the computer screen, and it says, uh, William, somebody, room 17, which is where we were, Jim Carlson, room 18. He's in the little curtained area right next door. So we make our way towards the curtained area right next door. We're, we're going in over here. The nurse is like, she pulls the curtain. What in the world are you doing? It's like he just got out of surgery. His wife hasn't seen him. You can't be in here. And so we got kicked out and we never got to see him. <laughs> There's a reason why Josh Mateer does the pastoral care visits more often than I do. Now I tell you that story not just because it's hor horribly embarrassing and worth a good laugh, but also because when you and I find ourselves in a situation where we're expecting to see something, 
Our eyes can play tricks on us. This person really did look like Jim Carroll. In fact, I went down to Denise in the waiting room, and I was like, hey, when you go up to see your husband, look at the guy in room 17. He looks just like him. But I'm expecting Jim Carlson in the hospital, we're in the recovery room, there's a guy that looks just like him, and our eyes begin to play tricks on us. That's true in life. This morning we're going to talk about the fact that when you and I became Christians, we were placed in Jesus Christ. But because we're not used to seeing ourselves in Jesus, Our eyes can play tricks on us, and we often see things about ourselves that aren't actually true, but because we expect to see them, we think they're true. And what's required is some objective piece of evidence, like a wristband that says William, or a woman who's very clearly not Denise, we need something objective to kind of shake us out of our way of seeing things. That's what God has for us this morning. An objective word from the Bible designed to help us see things correctly because even though we are in Christ Jesus, we don't often see ourselves the way that we are supposed to see ourselves because our mind and the evil one play tricks on us. So please take a Bible and turn to the book of Romans, chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, if you're using one of the Bibles you picked up on the way in, it's page 916. Romans chapter eight. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is talking about when you and I accept Jesus as our Lord, when we place our faith in Jesus, when we respond to God's invitation to become a Christian through Jesus, we are placed in Jesus' family. We are placed in Christ Jesus. And God says, for you and I who are Christians, there is now no condemnation. Now, everything in our lives, everything in our experience, everything in this world tells us that we should feel condemnation. By condemnation, Paul means there is no guilt There is no shame. There is no worthiness of death. There is no embarrassment for previous actions. There is no reason for us to be separated from God. But everything around us, our own experience, everything we're conditioned to see, we're conditioned to see our lives as being worthy of guilt and of shame and of separation from God. And here is the word of God giving us an objective truth in the middle of the situation in which our eyes might be deceiving us. God is saying, those who are in Jesus Christ, those who are Christians, there is no condemnation, no guilt, 
no shame, no dirtiness, no unworthiness, no separation from God, no reason for you and I to feel any distance between ourselves and the Lord. Why is this the case? Because we need an objective word from God. Paul is going to follow a very clear pattern of arguments in these four verses. Because everything in our lives conditions us to look at ourselves as being worthy of guilt and shame, being worthy of condemnation. And if God is going to tell us there is no condemnation, He's going to have to do it in a very objective way. And that's what Paul does. Building a case. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've got a chart that will appear on the screen to kind of help us work through the logic of the passage. So verse 1, the statement, there's no condemnation. If you are a Christian... There is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no separation from God, there is no unworthiness. When God looks at you and when we look at ourselves, we are not to see guilt or shame or unworthiness or separation. No condemnation. Why? Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because in Jesus we have been given God's Spirit, we have been set free from sin and from death. That's why there's no condemnation. And so Paul is building this argument, no condemnation. Why? Because we have been set free from the law and from sin and from death because through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have been given God's spirit. Why? Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Here is the heart of the gospel. Here is the heart of the book of Romans. Here is the heart of the message that God has for you and I. We talked about this when we were in Romans chapter three. If there was some way for God to write a law that would create in us good behavior, He would have done that. The problem is we are sinful and we have sinful flesh. And like uh, Tom talked about last week, when the law comes into play, do not do this, do not do that. All it does is create in us a longing to disobey and a condemnation for all our failures. That's what the law does. When we measure ourselves against the Ten Commandments, when we measure ourselves against the rules and regulations, the only result is we view ourselves as failures. It is impossible for God to write a law 
that would help us out of our situation. All the law does is show us our guilt and our shame and our failure and our unworthiness. Every time we hear a thou shalt not, we realize, but sometimes I do. And all the law has the power to do is point out our sin. But God accomplished what no rule, no law, nothing could ever accomplish by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That is the center, that is the heart, that is the middle of all of this stuff. There was no rule, there was no regulation that God could give which would bring about goodness in us and so God made a choice to send his own son Jesus to become a human. Not sinful like we're sinful, but like us, having flesh like we have flesh, being human like we're human, except for the fact that he never chose to sin just like us. And he did it so that Jesus would be a sin offering. Now the interesting thing is when you think about Jesus being a sin offering, all of this discussion began with the idea there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But interestingly enough, the idea of condemnation, while not applied to us, was applied to Jesus. For example, in Mark chapter 10, this is Jesus. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will what? Condemn, that is our word. That's our word from Romans chapter eight. No condemnation for us, but Jesus experienced condemnation. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Likewise, Mark chapter 14, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Jesus is on trial before the Jewish high priest and the Jewish ruling council. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. You can't get a clearer answer than that. Sometimes people accuse Jesus of not being really clear about if he's really God's son and if he's really the Messiah. That's about as clear as you can get. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And then of his own free will, Jesus offers up an additional piece of information. A quote from Psalm 110 in which he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Jesus, who was fully human, completely and totally human, in that passage, is making a claim to be equal with God. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. He is making a claim that he is equal with God the Father. And the problem is, there is no way that a human being can be equal with God the Father. And so the Jewish high priest and the Jewish ruling council and the very law itself is forced to condemn Jesus to death. The punishment for blasphemy is death. That's the sin that Jesus is crucified for. That's what he's put on trial for. It says in the Gospel of John, he being a human claimed to be God. That's the ultimate charge against Jesus. And because he is fully human, it is impossible for any human to be equal with God. And so he is declared to be a blasphemer He is turned over to the Roman authorities to be put to death on the charge of blasphemy. But Jesus is not only 100% human. He is also totally and completely God. Therefore, for him to claim equality with God cannot possibly be blasphemy. And because that can't possibly be blasphemy, the only choice for a just judge, the Father, is to step in and reverse the sentence. To raise Jesus from the dead, the law and the Jewish ruling council had declared him guilty because no human can be equal with God. By definition. Except for the fact that this human was also fully and completely God. And so the law was stuck. It both had to declare him guilty and innocent at the same time, and the law broke under the strain, and God raised him from the dead. But there's a problem. It's not gonna turn out to be a problem. It's gonna turn out to be a really great thing. (laughs) The problem is, even though Jesus has been resurrected, he already paid the price for sin. He's already paid a price that he didn't have to pay. The good news is he's paid a credit. Sin has been paid what it's owed, but Jesus didn't owe anything for himself. That means there's now a credit available to be applied to whomever needs that credit applied. Let me give you an example of what I mean. We just got back this last week uh, from family camp. There were a number of families from Calvary. Uh, We go to family camp together. It's open to anybody. 
Uh, so I encourage you, we're already kind of getting ready for next year. You got to kind of sign up ahead of time. It's really, it's excellent for those with high school and, and, and elementary school age kids. Love to have you come with us. One of the things we have to do is in order to reserve spots at camp, we got to pay for all the rooms ahead of time. And then when people sign up, they sort of reimburse the church for uh, the cost of the room. Now this past year, we had, uh, the, the church had provided through someone the money to pay for uh, the entire camp experience for a family. That family who was signed up to come was unable to come. We now therefore have a credit with the camp. And according to the camp, because Calvary's paid for that room, and because Calvary has reserved that room, the camp says, you can take any family you want and apply the credit that has been paid to their account. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus paid a price for sin. The wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. He paid that cost, but he didn't owe any money. What that has done is earned an infinite credit because his obedience is so much stronger than, than our disobedience that God now has the freedom to apply that credit to anyone who is in Jesus' family. Just like the camp says does, hey look, anybody who's part of the Calvary family, you can apply that credit to their account and they can come and experience camp and there'll be no bill because it's already been paid for. That's what Jesus did for us. Except his one act of obedience didn't just pay for one family. It was an act of infinite obedience. And the punishment he experienced of hell, of separation from God, is of infinite value. And so Jesus has won for us an infinite credit that can and is applied to anybody who's part of his family. That's what verse three is saying. There was no law that God could give that would enable us to pay our own bill. And so he sent Jesus, who in his own condemnation, who in experiencing condemnation himself, who being executed in guilt and in shame for all the sins of the world, won for everyone who's part of his family the credit for eternal life. That's the heart of the message of the gospel. Paul begins to pull out of that to say, because that's true, therefore, the end of verse three, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Because the bill has been paid for, sin now has no power over you and I. Listen. For the family who accepted the credit for the paid room, they can go to camp and they can continue to make payments to the camp for that room. The camp would be glad to accept the money. But the point is they don't have to. That bill has been paid. Likewise for you and I. The bill that sin was charging against us has been paid by Jesus. We talked about from Romans 6 and Romans 7. We can continue to make payments if we want. That's allowing ourselves to be re-enslaved to sin. But the point is the bill has been paid in full. 
You can go to camp, that family could go to camp and experience all the wonderful things without worrying about how are we gonna pay for this? How are we gonna pay for this when we get to the end of the week? They don't have to wake up in the morning and think how are we gonna pay for what goes on today? It's already been paid for. And God's point is, listen, you can wake up every day and think how am I gonna pay for all the things I did wrong yesterday? How am I going to pay for, how am I going to pay the price of sin for what I'm going to do wrong today? How am I going to pay the price? You can do that, but you'll effectively be re-enslaved to sin. And what God's trying to say, look, your bill is paid. It's done. You, sin no longer has any power over you. Listen, when the camp director shows up and says, hey, look, you owe us some money, the camping family says, no, we don't. That bill's been paid. The same is true when sin shows up at your door and says, you owe me an allegiance, you owe me a cost, you owe me suffering with guilt and with shame. The answer is, no, I don't. That bill's been paid. That's what God is trying to say. Because God sent his own son and paid your bill and paid my bill, sin has no right to show up and say, you ought to feel guilty. You ought to feel unworthy. That bill has been paid. Now the deception is, we think, well, if the person's out here charging me for the bill, I need to pay that bill. That's why you have to hear the objective word of God. The bill has been paid. You do not owe sin or death any payments. You don't owe them the payment of feeling guilty, of feeling unworthy, of feeling separated from God. You don't owe them the sin, the payment of feeling like you're separated from God. The bill has been totally and completely paid. But way too many of us are still making payments on a bill that we don't owe any money on. And listen, Satan and sin are happy to accept those payments. But God's saying you don't need to do that anymore. All, that feel, all those feelings of guilt, all those feelings of shame, all that time in which you're convinced that God is angry with you, you and I are just being deceived. The bill has been paid in full. We don't owe sin or death or guilt or shame another cent. Which leads to the final statement in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Which essentially means because sin's bill has been totally and completely paid, you and I are free to live life the way it was meant to be lived. Go enjoy camp. Enjoy all the things that it's got for you. You don't have to try to pay through the law and through sin all the things that need to be paid. The bill has been completely paid so that you and I can enjoy life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. You and I are free now to do things to please the Lord. We're free now to experience life. We don't have to wake up in the morning and think, how am I going to get this bill paid for? We don't have to go through our life worrying about when the bill comes at the end of the week, I'm not going to be able to pay it. The point is it's paid. Get on with enjoying life. Get on with serving the Lord. You don't have to meet the requirements of the law. Listen, the law, meaning this law, the Old Testament law, 
both condemned Jesus as guilty as a blasphemer and tried to declare him innocent as God himself. It couldn't handle the strain and it broke. It's no longer valid for you and I. We don't have to try to obey laws as if to try to earn our way or pay our way. God is saying to you and I today, the bill is paid in full. You're free to live life. You're free to let the Spirit guide you. You're free to experience the blessings of being in God. And listen, we're going to get to the end of this at at the end of Romans 8. If God gave you his son so that he could pay your bill, why do you think he's walking around angry with you today? He's pleased with you. He's blessed with you. You don't owe him guilt. You don't owe him shame. You don't owe him having to pay for your sins. You don't owe him having to walk around and beat yourself up. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There are no feelings of guilt. Listen, I don't know how else to say this. There are so many of us who walk around feeling guilty feeling like I'll never be able to make up for the stuff I did in the past. I'll never be able to make up for the stuff I'm doing now. I'll never be able to pay for the stuff that's coming in the future. I'm always going to fall short. And we live our lives in guilt and shame. Please hear the word of the Lord. It's an objective name tag on a bracelet. Wake up. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I didn't write this. This is God telling you your bill has been paid in full. You do not owe sin or death or Satan one more penny. Live life. Experience life. God's given you the spirit. You don't have to go back and beat yourself up. What if I had made this choice? What if I could have done that? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but you don't understand what I did. You don't understand how much I messed up. I don't, but I do understand there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't know. If I forget about this, if I let God erase this, then all that sin, it's for... There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But what about if I mess up today? What about if I mess up? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The bill has been completely and totally paid for. Listen, this is good news. You are never, ever, ever going to be presented with a bill for your sin. Never. It is paid in full. That's why in Romans 6 I said, look, I could lie to you and tell you, hey, don't sin anymore, you won't be forgiven, but that would do more damage than good. Everything you have done, are doing, or will do in the future that is wrong has been paid for by Jesus. And you say, well, I don't want to take advantage. Well, then go live life in the Spirit. Enjoy what God has for you. I'm not suggesting that you go and live life of sin. You'll get re-enslaved and you'll experience death again. But the good news is, There is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Jesus Christ was condemned, guilty, worthy of death, put to death, experienced hell. He was condemned so that we will never be. And please, the deception is crippling. To live life weighed down with guilt and with shame and with regret, there is now no condemnation. Hear the word of the Lord. 
the spirit of truth. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God brought you here this morning to set you free from guilt and from shame and from regret and from fear. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus.